All right, it's good to see everyone. Uh, we have a lot of new faces today. Uh, as we mentioned in the announcements, we have uh, our year 12s or that have graduated from JIDA last year joining us today. Um, I was wondering why we all look so young and youthful today, but um, it's great to have you guys with us. I know it's weird uh, having been in one ministry for a number of years to suddenly be amongst strangers, but uh, it is great to have you with us. We've been anticipating this. We've been in discussions, talking about you guys in the meetings, um, and we really hope, whether it's here or KB, uh, we, we do hope that you you find your place in a Christ-centered community. Um, and we also have new people here. Uh, so if you are new here, welcome. Uh, I always say this each week, but I genuinely mean it. It's great to have you with us. Uh, we do normally have snacks after. So if you want to stick around after, we'd love to have a chat and uh, just get to know your story. Um, we also have the Vanuatu and Fiji missions team. Uh, they've already left. Um, so I was just thinking um, I'll pray for them uh, as I before I begin my sermon. Uh, so why don't we just bow our heads for a moment in prayer uh, for the Vanuatu and Fiji missions team. Uh, Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for those that have answered uh, the call for the Great Commission uh, as you share in Matthew 28. Uh, Lord, we pray for this mission team uh, as they make their way uh, to a different part of the world. Uh, we pray that their their presence would be a blessing in the communities that they encounter. Uh, we pray that your kingdom would continue to spread to the ends of the earth. And whether it's through big or even the smallest of interactions, we pray that Christ's name would be honored. Uh, we pray that if they suffer any weakness or any lacking, that you would that you would lavish your providence and your provisions upon them in abundance as you promise in the scriptures. Uh, and Lord, we pray that you would bring unity to, to that team during the course of this mission trip uh, and that they would be able to come back rejoicing with testimonies of victory uh, for the sake of your name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, uh, we are continuing our series in Mark's Gospel. We've only got about three or four chapters left, um, but... I'm excited. I'm planning on starting on Romans after this, uh, but we'll see how we go. Um, so Mark chapter 13, we're going to be in verses 1 to 13. Uh, Mark chapter 13, verses 1 to 13. Uh, for those of you that are new here, I do read from the ESV version, the English Standard Version. I know some of you guys used it, NIV or NLT. Nothing wrong with those translations. They're all great. Uh, just that I grew up with the, the ESV. Um, and the word of God reads, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. 
There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my name's sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious before beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. But brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we near uh, towards the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, as he makes his way to the cross, uh, we have this difficult, in my opinion, probably one of the most difficult passages in Mark's gospel. Uh, But Lord, nonetheless, we pray that your spirit would give us discerning hearts to understand and flesh out what this prophetic message from Jesus signified to the apostles and what it signifies for us today. Lord, we live in uncertain times, but there is nothing uncertain about your word or your plan. And so, Lord, once again, may you watch over the words of my mouth. May you watch over the meditations of our hearts. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Any passage in scripture that talks about the end times uh, is always difficult, uh, especially when we can't correlate it directly to world events or we, we can't correlate it definitively to what's going on in the world today. And throughout history, there's been many false teachers, there's been many non-false teachers, just Christians, uh, that have misunderstood what the Bible has said about the end times. Uh, And as a result, uh, through the course of history, there's been many, many failed doomsday predictions. Um, The Jehovah's Witnesses have made like three or four predictions in the last 50 years, got it wrong all three times. Um, But I heard a story of a Korean church one day um, that the pastor claimed to have read through the Old and the New Testament, read through the apocalyptic prophecies, and claimed to have received a prophetic vision that told him when the end is coming and that it was coming soon. And he shared it with his congregation. It's on this date and at this time, Jesus is going to come back and the world is going to come to an end. And he sold it to them. He, ge- he genuinely believed it. Like I don't think he was a false teacher. I think he genuinely believed it. And he told his congregation, you need to get ready. Sell everything. Sell your home. You don't need that. Remember, you know, Jesus said, you know, don't hoard up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. And so the congregate members, out of passionate obedience, they sold everything. They sold their cars. They sold their furniture. They sold their homes. They sold their assets. They met at church every day leading up to this date, praying each night in anticipation of the return of Jesus. Because they thought, you know, there's no point in keeping this. We're not going to need this. And when Jesus returns, we want to show that we lived by faith and in expectation of his return. 
And soon, uh, the local news caught wind of this. Because they were going around telling everyone, Jesus is coming back. We have worked out the date that he's coming back. And the local news reported on this. And naturally, the, the residents of the homes, of you know, people that lived around the church, uh, they came out on this day. When that day came, they came out, the local news came out in anticipation of this. It almost felt like a New Year's countdown. Like, as it counted down to that time, it's like five, four, three, two, one. And they're all looking up at the sky. And nothing happened. Well, obviously, nothing happened because we're here. But nothing happened. And people, like, looked at their watches. Like, is my watch a bit fast? Nothing. And the neighbors started snickering. But soon, their snickering was drowned out by the wails and the cries of the congregant members because they realized they'd made a huge mistake. And not only that, financially, many of them were now ruined. They'd sold their cars, their homes, and they'd given the money to charity. They just gave the money away to those in need. And one particular man was sobbing like hysterically. He couldn't be consoled. And he was just holding his hand, like his face just weeping uncontrollably. And a reporter was standing next to him. And he patted him on the back and said, cheer up. It's not like it's the end of the world. <laughs> but there is something fascinating, isn't it, about the end of the world, the second coming of Jesus. And when we do look at the scriptures, we can't help but look at certain world events that are taking place and think, you know, is there a link? Like the, the Russian-Ukrainian war, the conflict in Israel and Palestine. And then we look at natural world disasters. I remember when, the I don't know if the U12s remember, but there were like massive tsunamis. Apparently there's going to be one in Japan if it hasn't happened already. And people, I remember my mother used to look at that and said, Jay, the end is near. There is a part of us that wonders, what do all these things in the world mean in the context of Scripture? And we're going to have a look at what's called the Olivet Discourse, or the teachings on the Mount of Olives, um, which is, interestingly, the longest teaching that is recorded in Mark's Gospel from Jesus. Now, as I mentioned in my prayer, there are actually only a few days left until Jesus goes to the cross Earlier on, in, on Sunday, Jesus had entered into Jerusalem. Um, on Monday and Tuesday, Jesus taught in the temple. And we saw that Jesus engaged in many disputes. Like Religious leaders came to challenge him one after the other. And although Mark's gospel doesn't specify what day today's passage is taking place, we can kind of guesstimate if it's one week until his death, it's probably about Wednesday or Thursday. And today's passage begins by, you know, the disciples standing in awe at the site of the Jerusalem temple. They were just in the temple, and they've come out, and they're looking at it, and they're just blown away. Uh, verse 1, it says, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Uh, now, I'm not a very cultured person. Uh, I, I, my wife says, like, you're like someone that's been living under a rock. My wife has visited more places than in Australia than I have, even though she's from Korea. Um, but I have been to a few countries. Uh, I, I went to Guam. I don't know if you guys know Guam. It's like an island in the middle of nowhere. Um, I've been to Korea, Japan, uh, Korea, 
to ask my wife to date and then eventually marry me. Uh, Japan, I went on a family holiday with my in-laws. I've been to Indonesia. Actually, I have been to a few places. Uh, maybe I am cultured. Uh, I went to Indonesia on missions. <laughs> and I went to New Zealand earlier this year to preach at Costa. Uh, I went to Italy. I, I, I have. I, I am cultured. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I went to Italy on my honeymoon. And I have to say, out of you know all the countries I, I visited, I think Italy. Uh, I hated Italy the most because I hate walking. Uh, my wife made me go on like a three-hour hike yesterday in the Blue Mountains. Hated every minute of it. I hate walking, and in Italy and Europe, you have to walk. There's, there's no other way. Um, but on the other hand, Italy impressed me the most. And the reason it impressed me the most was because of the buildings, the architecture. And I used to wonder, like, before I went to Italy, I was like... I'm one of those people who's like, what's the point of traveling there to take photos when you can just Google it online? Google it, you'll see everything. Um, but I have to admit, there is something very, very impressive about seeing these buildings up close. There's something breathtaking. Like one cathedral in uh, Florence that I saw, the, the Cathedral of Santa Maria. Um, there's like an extra part to that name. I'm not even going to try and pronounce it. But I remember I saw the Santa Maria Cathedral, and I was absolutely gobsmacked. You can probably Google it when you get home. Uh, but it wasn't just the size and the beauty of the building, but the intricate details on every part of the wall of this building, inside and outside. Like, I remember I saw this building, I was just like, wow, how on earth did they build this? Like, and, like, I asked that question not because, like, people can't build that, but because of when it was built. Like, today, you have so many buildings that are built with, like, building defects. You know, you had the Opal Tower in Olympic Park. It looked majestic, but then it started crumbling, and there was, like, a whole news expose about it. But these buildings were built with such meticulous beauty, and they have stood the test of time. You look at how majestic it is, and you're just like, wow, this, this is truly beautiful. And that's how the disciples, I think, felt when they came out of the temple. They looked up at this Jerusalem temple, and they thought, wow, this is amazing. Now, if you look at like your Bibles, like if you've got a reference or a study Bible, you'll, you'll have these colorful pictures in the middle or the back of the Jerusalem temple. And you might look at that and think, oh, that's not that impressive. What's the big deal? But the Jerusalem temple was actually truly a sight to behold. Because when you read the New Testament, uh, you don't really come to, well, even if you look at the pictures in your Bible, you don't really come to truly appreciate the size, uh, the beauty of the temple. Um, to give you a bit of context, according to Jewish historians, not Christians, but Jewish historians that worshipped in that temple, um, they have recorded that the temple size was approximately 140,000 square meters. Uh, to give you a bit more context, uh, I'm a bit of a dork. I went to the liberty of Googling and measuring roughly how big this building is um, on Google. Like, you know how it gives you the scale? It's like this is from here to here is 10 meters. I've got a little ruler and I started measuring. And I compared it with the square footage of the Jerusalem temple, 
And I worked out that the Jerusalem temple, compared to this building, like not just like this room, but this building from end to end, because we've got like kids' ministries and extra buildings, all the way to the end, uh, the Jerusalem temple was about 161 times the size of this building. That's pretty massive. Uh, in terms of the walls of the Jerusalem temple, they were about 45 meters high. Um, to make it even more amazing, the stones that were used to build this temple, they, they kind of varied in size, like the bricks. Like when you think of a brick, what do you think of? Like a brick about like this size, like it's like brown or orange or whatever color it is. You think it's about this size. Uh, the stones that they excavated, um, archaeologists excavated, the stones that were used to build the temple, they varied in size, but they found some of the foundation stones that they dug up. They were like 20 meters long. Like one brick, 20 meters long, two meters high. And some of them weighed in excess of 600 tons. Uh, one brick, that's one brick. Like bigger than your car, bigger, it's like the size of a truck, one brick. And these stones, uh, they weren't just like any rock that they carved out. They polished them. Uh, they polished it white. And if you look, if, if, well, back then, if you looked at the eastern wall of the Jerusalem temple, these, white, uh, these bricks weren't just polished white, but that they were coated in gold. So much gold that when the sun set, the temple would glisten. Like You'd have to shield your eyes if you were standing on the eastern wall of the Jerusalem temple. And at night, the temple would glisten in the moonlight. Like people think that the, the pyramids are insane. Like oh, if you think about it, the, the, the Jerusalem temple was insane. And this is the second temple. Like this is the one after Solomon's temple was destroyed. Apparently Solomon's temple was even more majestic to the point where, where they built, like when they built this temple, the people looked at it and just started crying because they were like, this isn't anything close to Solomon's temple in terms of glory, majesty, and beauty. But this temple alone, the design was pretty insane. And so you can't really blame the disciples when they came out and they looked at the temple. And they were just thinking, wow, this, this is one crazy building to worship in. And so when you see a building with bricks 20 meters in size, two or 600 tons, polished smooth, covered in gold, you can't help but think, you know what, this, this building is going to stand the test of time. This is a building that's going to be around forever. This building, uh, historians say, took about 50 years to build. And at the time of this passage, the construction was still ongoing. It took a sheer amount of human effort to build what they were seeing in that day. This is why when Jesus says in John chapter 2, to the Jewish leaders, destroy this temple and I'll build it up in three days. The Jewish leaders laughed at Jesus and they thought he was crazy. You're going to carve out 20 meter sized bricks that weigh 600. You're going to do this. You're crazy. It took us 50 years to build this and it's not even finished. You're going to build it in three days. But in today's passage, Jesus explains that it's not crazy. He says this temple is going to be destroyed in verse 2. Jesus, it says, Jesus said to him, the disciple, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another 
that will not be thrown down. Jesus is saying to this disciple who's standing there, gobsmacked by this building, the sheer size and the magnitude of this building, he says to him, you know what, I know you're impressed by this, but you see this building, you see the 600 ton bricks, you see the gold, the 45 meter wall, it's going to be obliterated. There's not even going to be one brick on top of another. This building that you think is going to be around forever, it's going to be absolutely destroyed. And upon hearing this, two sets of brothers, uh, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, they come to Jesus. And they're curious. They ask him in verse 4, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the signs when all these things are about to be accomplished? Um, and they ask these two questions. When and what's the sign going to be? And they ask Jesus this, these questions still with the incorrect understanding of the Messiah in their heads. They still think that Jesus, they know he's a messianic king. They know that he's a savior, but they still think he is a savior to liberate Israel, not from God's wrath, not from hell, not from judgment, but from Rome. They still think that Jesus has come not to be a king of an eternal kingdom, but to become the king of physical Israel, a military warrior king. They have heard Jesus say, I'm going to die and rise again. And whilst they can't understand it in their minds, they still think that somehow this is going to work out and fit into their plans, the plan of Jesus becoming a warrior king. And we know this because after the resurrection in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, the same disciples come and ask Jesus, when will you at this time restore what? The eternal kingdom? No. The physical kingdom of Israel. They come asking Jesus, when is this going to happen? And what's the sign so that we can get ready? We can get ready to be your sec second and third in charge. But Jesus uh, doesn't answer their question the way they expect. Instead, he responds with warnings. Verses 5 and 8, Jesus says to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying that I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom will rise against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines, but these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So Jesus is saying, you want to know when the temple is going to be destroyed? Don't worry about that. But instead, I want you to be on your guard. That's what Jesus says. That's his, that's his response to their question. Watch out. Because many are going to come. After I'm gone, after, you know, when the temple is destroyed, which does take place in AD 70, just many are going to come. And they're going to come pretending to be me. Verse 6, when he says, you know, they're going to come saying, I am he. There is a particular wording in the Greek, ego, I, me. I am who I am. The covenant name that God gave to Moses in the Exodus, the covenant name that Jesus identifies himself with when he says to the religious leaders before Abraham was, 
I am. He says, many are going to come saying, ego I, I me. I am who I am. They're going to come pretending to be me, or they're going to come pretending to represent me, or they're going to come pretending that they have my authority. And Jesus warns them, forget about the when, forget about the, you know, what the sign's going to be. Make sure that no one leads you astray. Be on your guard. He says there's going to be wars. There's going to be all kinds, not just two nations, nation after nation, kingdom against kingdom. There are going to be a ton of wars. And from the time of this passage, there have been countless wars. And on top of that, there's going to be natural disasters. And since this passage, there have been natural disasters. And this is where people look at the, the prophecy from Jesus in this passage. And they say, aha, we see things happening in the world today. The end is near. My mom always used to say that, Jay, the end is near. I remember there was a time many, many years ago, I think it was like 17 years ago, or 15 years ago, there were the bushfires. And because it was really windy, I remember everyone woke up one day and the sky was orange. Do the older people remember that? You woke up in the sky, everything was just orange, and my my mum burst into my room. Jay, Jesus is coming, get ready. And then you, we just found out it was just like the dust and the smog that got blown over from the bushfires. But it's understandable, because we're meant to live in light of Scripture. Uh, but we've had so many people claim that the end is near since the writing of the New Testament. Like wars I mentioned, there's been a ton of wars and the scale of those wars have increased over the course of time to the point where today it's like if one world leader presses the wrong button, it's like the world's going to be obliterated with nuclear warheads. Natural disasters um, seem to be getting worse and worse over the course of time. But interestingly, Jesus says in today's passage, this doesn't signify the end. He says, these aren't the end of the birth pains. But he says, it's the beginning. He continues on saying, but be on your guard from verse 9. He says, for they will deliver you over to councils and you'll be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness about them or before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and child or children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated for my sake, my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. It's a bit of a grim message. But remember, the four brothers that came and asked Jesus these questions, and presumably the 12 apostles as well, uh, they were still expecting Jesus to be a warrior king. They were anticipating Israel to be the new international powerhouse of the world, the road, the new Rome or the new Greece. They were expecting Jesus to be the new Caesar or the new Alexander the Great. And so they asked this question about, you know, when's the destruction of the Jerusalem temple going to happen? Because for them, it's like, all right, well, when the temple gets destroyed, that means the new kingdom's coming. That's when we have to get ready to be the new leaders of the free world. 
I'm ready to be a second or third in charge of this new empire. That's why they ask Jesus the question. But Jesus' response paints a different picture. Remember, Jesus responded by saying, you know what? There's going to be fake messiahs. Don't worry about that. Be on your guard, but don't worry about the fake messiahs. There's going to be wars and natural disasters that's going to happen, like wars on scales you can't even possibly begin to imagine. But hey, don't worry about that. I don't want you to be scared. I don't want you to worry or be anxious. Don't be worried. Don't be anxious. Here's what's going to happen. If you remain faithful to me, don't be worried. You're going to get attacked. You're going to get beaten. You're going to get persecuted. And it won't even necessarily be from the religious authorities. You know, your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, they're going to deliver you over to be killed for being my follower. It's not exactly the greatest sales pitch from Jesus, is it? Come, don't worry about a thing. You're going to suffer, you're going to be hated, and you're going to die probably a horrendous, painful death. It's not the most positive and assurance response from Jesus, but that's how the passage ends. Congratulations, don't worry, you're going to die. Now, there is more to it than that. Um, and I wanted us to flesh out what that is uh, in the observations because there is an intention behind this. Like Jesus isn't a sadist. Um, there is an intention for him giving this warning and this apocalyptic prophecy. Uh, but before I get to that, I want to flesh out something interesting. It's sort of a side note, but it links to the, the main idea of this passage. And this might sound controversial from me, uh, but hear me out because I want to touch on it. It's unavoidable because it's here in the passage. Uh, and that's verse 10. Verse 10 says that the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. You've heard that growing up. That's why Sydney Full Gospel and many churches are very passionate about missions. The Bible college that I graduated from, SMBC, Sydney Missionary Bible College, their whole thing is that Christ can be proclaimed in all the nations. And Jesus says something similar in Matthew 28. After his resurrection, before he ascends into heaven, he tells the disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Make disciples of all nations. Now you might be thinking, well, what's so controversial about that? Um, This is where it gets controversial. Uh, What I found fascinating or strange, is that if you read Romans, and this is why I want to go through Romans uh, after this, if you read through Romans and you get to the end of Romans, Paul writes what's called a doxology. It's like a word of praise to conclude his letter. And he says in Romans 16, 25 to 26, Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of all faith. Did you catch that? 
Paul says at the end of Romans, it's already been made known to all nations. Jesus says, make sure the gospel is made known to all nations. Paul says a few decades later, it's already been done. Done. What does that mean? Does that mean Aiden's wasted his time going on missions to Fiji and Vanuatu? No, no, I'm not that controversial. No, no, it's not. Um, When Jesus issued the command to make disciples of all nations, it was a universal call for all of God's people to proclaim the gospel and share Christ into the lives of all people groups. However, through the lenses of the apostles, including Paul, uh, their idea of all nations was actually limited um, because they don't have Google Maps like we do. I don't even know if they knew the earth was round at the time. But their idea of all nations was limited to the Roman Empire. The immediate surrounding nations around Jerusalem, around Rome, that's what Paul was talking about when he said, all nations know the gospel. However, there are three nuggets of truth or principles that we can draw out from Paul's conclusion to Romans in light of today's passage. Firstly, Paul, at the end of Romans, says that the gospel, which was a mystery or a secret, is no longer a mystery or a secret. Instead, Paul says what was once a mystery has now been revealed. It's not a secret anymore. It's been revealed. Through what? Through the scriptures. And what this means is that for Christians from the New Testament up until today, from the completion of Genesis to Revelation, everything we need to know about Christ, everything we need to know about God, the gospel, salvation, all we need for the Christian life, everything we need is revealed to us through the scriptures. We need to live out the scriptures. And I mentioned this in my previous sermon. This is why I am always skeptical whenever I hear a preacher from any pulpit say that they received a new revelation from God outside of scripture. When they say, you know what, I was in my room praying and God gave me a secret, a new secret that no one knows about. And it turns out that the secret's not something from scripture. If we are to receive scripture as the authoritative word of God, the voice of God himself, then we have to accept scripture when it says that the gospel, the plan of God is no longer a mystery. But what was once a secret, what was once a mystery, has now been revealed through the word. Secondly, if we're to accept that prophecy in scripture, is according to the command of an eternal God, then this means it gives us hope. Because it means in the midst of war, in the midst of chaos and uncertain times, in the midst of natural disasters and persecution, it means that God is still in charge. Even if it seems to us like as if he's not. I met with a representative uh, from the Anglican Church uh, a few weeks ago at a, at a pastor's association, and she shared with me that the laws that they passed in Melbourne not that long ago, restricting what can be said from the pulpit, the government is pushing to have that exercised 
in Sydney, in New South Wales. Meaning that if I say something from the pulpit, even if it's biblical, even if it's true, if it offends a certain people group from a certain ideology, I can be fined or go to jail. They're pushing this. And a lot of the past, we looked at each other like, really? Never thought this day and age would come. But God is still in charge. Verse 13 says that you will be hated by all for being a follower of Jesus. But because God is in charge, if we believe and trust in Christ and endure to the end, we will be saved. God is still in charge. Finally, Jesus says to watch out. Be on your guard. You know, verse 5 says that see that no one leads you astray. In the Greek, it just says watch out. Be on your guard. Um, verse 9, Paul says be on your guard. Watch out. Um, later on in next, week, next week's passage, Jesus says it again. But in verse 5, Jesus says watch out so that you're not led astray by false messiahs. How do you do that? How can you ensure that you're not led astray by false messiahs? There's only one way to familiarize yourself with the scriptures. Not just listen to a sermon once a week, but for you to immerse yourself in God's word and seize every opportunity you have, every resource that's available to familiarize yourself with the scriptures. Why? Because as Paul mentioned, the scriptures are no longer a mystery. Everything you need to know has been revealed in the word. And my hope and prayer is that you familiarize yourself to a point that whenever someone steps into the pulpit and preaches or says something questionable, that you would be able to discern for yourself that something's not right. Or if someone says something that's unbiblical, that you can call it out and say, this has nothing to do with God's word. And he says again in verse 9, be on your guard, watch out. On your guard from what? From persecution? No. Because Jesus says persecution is going to happen. It's not, it might happen. He says it is going to happen. But Jesus says, be on your guard to recognize that this is meant to happen. Suffering in the Christian life is inevitable. Be on your guard to recognize this. But beyond this, when it does happen, be on your guard to remember that despite this happening, God is still in charge. The gospel will be proclaimed because God is still in charge. Christ will receive glory for himself because God is still in charge. And because God is still in charge, it means that even in the midst of persecution, you are not forgotten. Your suffering is not forgotten. Your hardships for the sake of Jesus' name is not forgotten. Why? Because God has ordained it that the one who endures to the end, the one who endures suffering for his namesake until the end, will be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the honesty of Scripture, the honesty of your word. 
that you don't sugarcoat or paint a romanticized picture of what life looks like, but that you give us warnings to prepare our hearts for what is to come. That you give us truth so that even in uncertain times, that we are able to live with certainty and with conviction. We might not know when Christ is returning, but you tell us not to be anxious about that. Not to be anxious when the wars come, when natural disasters come, or when persecution comes. But you equip us with truth so that we can live in the conviction that even in the midst of uncertainty, we have an ultimate certainty that you are in charge. We thank you and we pray to grow in this conviction from faith to faith. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.